Good morning, Salt City. Great to see you guys. As I said last week, this will be our last Sunday as Salt City Church. So coming into the new year, the name of our church changes to Redemption Church. And before we jump into the message, got a quick ask for you guys. So part of the reason for changing our name to Redemption Church is that we are getting into a building. And the plan is that we're going to be closing on that building on January 5th in terms of the loan to build it out. And so what I'm asking you guys is to consider giving above and beyond this month to Salt City. And the reason is that we are going to be depleting a lot of our cash reserves in starting that building project. So I would just encourage you guys, if you have some extra cash laying around to consider giving it to Salt City, And I want to say that that is in light of the reality that this has been the greatest year of generosity in the history of our church. So that comes with a big thank you. And if that feels like a heavy burden to you and a weight, we don't believe in guilty giving at Salt City. So the the answer is simple for you. Just don't give. All right. So um, thank you guys so much for your generosity. Let's just go ahead and, and jump into the message now. So last week, we ended our message by saying that Mary pondered all of these things, treasuring them up in her heart. And the reason for that is she perceived that Jesus was both king and human. Her response was to see him as he was. And what flowed from that, what we're going to see in this text is what flowed from that was an obedient life. She saw Jesus for who he was, and what followed was an obedient life. And we're going to see that there's a contrast between true Christian living and the two ways that our souls normally go when we come in contact with God's law. And those two ways would be characterized as one, on one side, would be sort of a lawlessness. So we see the law of God, And we say, I don't want to obey that. I'm going to do whatever I want. So this is sort of the feeling that we get when we see the do not enter sign on a door and we're like, I want to go in there and see what's behind that door. And the other response to the law of God that is not to treasure Jesus and respond to his grace is called legalism. And so that's the response of saying, oh, There's a do not enter sign on that door. There is no way I would ever go in that door. And if you're the type of person that would go in that door, I'm going to kind of be judgy towards you. And we might even say, not only am I not going to enter into that door, I'm not even going to get close to that door. I'm not going to get within 100 yards of that door. And so we might start making up all sorts of other rules and those types of things. So what we're going to see this morning is that our obedience to Jesus is fueled by our hope in Jesus. So the first thing that we're going to see is that obedience is practical. Okay, look with me at Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. We're picking up the story after the birth of Jesus. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called 
holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So what I mean by obedience is practical is that it's concerned with actually doing things, not just a theory or idea about doing things. So I said that Mary, and by extension Joseph, they had treasured up the birth of Jesus in their heart. They pondered it. And one of the ways that that's manifesting itself is in this text. They are specifically obeying the commands of God. And there's two commands that they're obeying. One of them relates to themselves, and the other one relates to Jesus. And so what they're doing is they're going down to Jerusalem, both to purify themselves from sin and to dedicate or consecrate Jesus as their firstborn son. And this is in response to two direct commands of God. One is found in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, and is quoted in this passage, but let me read that command in its fullness. It says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. And so in response to God's great rescue of his people in the Exodus, the people of Israel were to consecrate or set aside their firstborn. Because in the Exodus, if you remember right, the lamb was sacrificed, the blood was placed over the doorpost, and the firstborn sons in Egypt were killed, but the firstborn sons in Israel were spared. And so out of a thankful heart, the Israelites were supposed to obey God by dedicating or consecrating or setting apart their firstborn sons. The second command that we see that Mary and Joseph are obeying by going to Jerusalem is they're obeying the command to be purified. So prior to the coming of Jesus, and his substitutionary death forth on the cross, people were supposed to make sacrifices in the temple for their sin. So this is laid out in part in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7, and quoted in part in the text that I just read. It says this, But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he's committed two turtle doves or two pigeons one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering. So we saw in this text that Mary and Joseph brought two young pigeons, or two turtle doves, which meant they were so poor that they couldn't afford to bring a lamb. So they went from Nazareth to Jerusalem to make this sacrifice for their sins. So here's what's going on, I think, in their consciousness. They believe we are sinful. We have broken God's commands. We have not always done what he's told us to do, and we have left many things undone that he has told us to do. And as a result of that, we need a sacrifice for our sins. But you see, basically, two realities are coming together in these two different texts. One is 
that Jesus is being set apart or consecrated. And you see another reality that Mary and Joseph are making sacrifice for their sins. But we know, as we zoom out on this story, that Jesus is not being consecrated because he's being saved from being the Lamb of God. He is being consecrated as the Lamb of God. So Mary and Joseph don't know it, but they are actually setting him apart, not to be spared, but to die for them. And so they are simply put, obeying God in everything that they're doing. I think the application for us is that mere feelings of wonder at Christmas is not the proper response to what Jesus has done for us. It doesn't fully honor him. Obedience from the heart does. When we see what Jesus has done for us, our response ought to be, yes, first wonder and awe that he came to live among us and to die for us, but then it should take shape in practical steps of obedience in our lives. And there's this whole thing in American Christianity, or so-called Christianity, that says that you can believe in Jesus without obeying Jesus. There is no such reality in the Bible. And so let me read something that I think seems a little bit shocking to us, but ought to be normal to us. For somebody to take God at his word and then put that into practice. This was written right around this time of the year by a missionary named Jim Elliott, who would be martyred for his faith. It's written on December 28th, 1955. He's writing about making contact with an unreached people group in South America to his parents and telling them he's gonna continue to go through this. So listen along. He says, the contact is planned for Friday or Saturday, January 6th or 7th. We may have to wait longer. I don't have to remind you that these things are, com- that these are completely naked savages. I fa- saw the first sign of clothes last week, a G-string who have never had any contact with white men other than killing. They do not have firearms, but kill with long shant wood lances. They do not have fire except when they make from rubbing sticks together on moss. They use bark cloth for carrying their babies, sleep in hammocks, steal machetes and axes when they kill other Indians. They have no other word for God in their language, only for devils and spirits. I know you will pray. Now listen to this line. Our orders are, quote, the gospel to every creature, your loving son and brother, Jim. Those are the last words he wrote to his parents because he followed through in obedience to Jesus' command to preach the gospel to every creature And he ended up being killed along with four other missionaries by those very Indians that he wrote to his parents about on January 8th, 1956, at the age of 28 years old. He heard God's command, and because he loved him, he obeyed him. Okay, so we may not be called to a miraculous Virgin birth 
or to be martyred for Jesus. But this is what we are all called to do, to treasure Jesus in our hearts in such a way that when we read the Bible, we don't just read it to make us feel good or to stand in awe, but we read it to obey it. We see the commands of Jesus and we obey the commands of Jesus. After all, Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So that's the first thing. Obedience is practical. It takes shape in our lives. The second thing we see in the text is that obedience brings illumination. Look with me at Luke chapter two, verses 25 through 35, and we'll see this in the life of Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. So wouldn't you love for someone to say about you that you are a righteous and devout person? That was true of Simeon. He was a person who was seeking after God. He was a man of prayer. He was a man who understood the scriptures. He was a man who was seeking to obey God in everything that he did in his life. And so, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Israel, at the time, was not an official nation. They were an occupied people. And so he was longing that there would be a king who would come and would console them. And so in Simeon's soul was deep sadness but his deep sadness did not cause him to withdraw from God, but to pursue God all the more. He was in a posture of waiting. And that was not the surrounding cultural context. Simeon was definitely swimming upstream. True believers at that time were few and far between. Yes, many people were going through the motions. There was a lot of formal religion, a lot of synagogue attendance, but there was not a lot of true faith. Love for God during that time had been all but lost. And as Simeon is pursuing after God and he's spending time with God in prayer, God reveals to him that his hopes will come true. That he's actually going to get to see the king who will bring consolation to Israel before he dies. 
And so one day, he goes up to the temple again. And in walk Mary and Joseph with a baby. And Simeon recognizes that this baby is the true king of Israel, is the God-man. Now, how is that possible? You read through the Gospels, and you get to other parts where other people are interacting with Jesus in adulthood, and Jesus is doing miracles, and he's speaking powerful words, and he's telling them straight up that he is God, come to earth to save them, and those people don't believe in him, and yet Simeon simply sees him as a baby and believes. Flesh and blood does not reveal to you that Jesus is the Son of God. The only reason that anyone in this room has seen the beauty of Jesus is the same way that Simeon sees the beauty of Jesus. It is through the Holy Spirit. Your faith is not something that you manufactured. It's not that you're better than other people or smarter than other people. Your faith is a gift from above. Simeon's eyes had been opened by the Holy Spirit previous to this moment in prayer and in the moment by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Remarkable. And so, the Holy Spirit doesn't just open his eyes so that he can see Jesus as he is, but he can say out loud that he can proclaim who he is, which is God's intention in all of our lives. In revealing Jesus to us, it's not that he's revealing Jesus to us so we can keep that to ourselves, but so that we can shout it from the rooftops. And so Simeon does that and says that Jesus would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He's saying, here's God's purpose in sending his king to console his people, Israel. God's purpose has always been that he would bless his people, to be a blessing. And Jesus is coming not just for God's chosen people, Israel, he's coming for the whole world. The message of Christmas is that Jesus is for everyone. His offer of salvation is available to all because he came for all. He didn't just come for the good and the righteous, he came for sinners, from every type of possible background. Simeon goes on, blesses Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, and gives us some more specifics on what he sees by the Holy Spirit that Jesus will do. This is remarkable. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign of that is opposed. And then he gives us an idea of what the sign that he's referring to is, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. 
The moment that Simeon is seeing by faith is the moment when the Son of God is hanging on the cross. And he can see by faith his mother Mary standing there. She was there witnessing the death of her son, the son of God. The sign is opposed because here's what the sign says about humanity. The sign says that we are so bad, so evil, that the son of God had to die for us. And it shows about the Son of God that he is so good that he was willing to die for us. So in summary, here's where Simeon's devotion and righteousness took him. It took him to a place that we wouldn't expect it to take him. It didn't take him to a place of pride or feeling superior to others It took him to a place of seeing his need for a savior. Because here's what Simeon was doing day after day. He was looking at the scriptures and he was staring into the law of God and he was seeing how far short he fell of God's commands and it made him cry out for consolation, God, would you save me? And so when he saw the salvation of God, he recognized it because he knew himself to be a sinner in need of a savior, not a righteous person with no need for salvation. Did you know that the purpose of the law of God is not to be a ladder for you to climb to heaven? but it is to be like a spotlight on all of your weakness and sin. I learned this from a theologian and author by the name of Francis Schaeffer. I remember reading his book called True Spirituality when I was in college, and I had this aha moment. Basically, he said that many Christians make the mistake of reading the commandment Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they say, see, what you need to do is you need to get rid of all the other commandments of God, and let's just make this super simple. We just need to love God and love others. Do you know what love God and love others is, though? Love God and love others is not a simplifying of the law of God. It is a deepening of the law of God. When Jesus continually repeats, love God and love others, we're not supposed to think, oh, sweet, I I can get rid of all those other commandments and I can just love God and love others. We're supposed to do all of the commandments from the heart. Here's what happens when you come to that realization, that what God requires of you is to love him from your heart. It's like the mirror of your self-righteousness shatters. You are completely undone. You once looked in a mirror and you thought, yep, I've got it all together. 
everything's good with me, and all of a sudden, you realize, looking at those commands, that your self-image based on self-righteousness can no longer exist because you have been that bad. And when you get to that place, you cry out, as Simeon did, for the consolation of this Savior. Because there is no other Savior in heaven or on earth other than this Jesus. And so obedience brings illumination to the reality that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And finally, obedience leads to thankfulness. Look with me at verses 36 through 40. We're going to interact with Anna for a little bit here. It says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, by all counts, Anna's life story did not turn out the way she would have envisioned as a young woman. She likely got married around the age of 16, which was very common in that day. Her husband died when she was around the age of 23. And so at this point, she had been a widow for 60 plus years. At one point in her life, she had envisioned that her house would be filled with kids, that there would be laughter, that her life story would turn out in the way that she envisioned it. Maybe at this point, she had envisioned having grandkids, but instead, she was alone. But here's the remarkable thing about Anna. She didn't turn inward. She didn't start having a pity party. At a very young age, instead of turning to bitterness and being overcome with grief, she turned to God. And God became real to her. You know, we all say, I know God, I have a relationship with God. And that's true for many of us. But when you encounter grief or loss in a deep way for the first time, and instead of turning to bitterness, you turn to God, this is the way it feels. I knew God before, but now I really know him. And so Anna was going to the temple not out of religious duty, not because she had to, but because the most important person in the world was there for her to interact with. She loved God. God had become a husband to her. 
She had that type of relationship with him. Now, I was meeting with a guy, mentoring a guy for a while, who at a young age, I think he was in late elementary school, early middle school, and his dad died. And he had a couple other siblings, and his mom was a very godly woman. And he told me that he remembers when his dad died, that his mom circled up the family after the funeral, and she said, kids, God is my husband. She said, he is going to carry our family through this. And he remembers his mom having remarkable strength because she didn't turn inward to pity and she didn't let grief overwhelm her. She took her anxiety and her grief to God and she deepened her relationship with God. She used her suffering as an opportunity to get to know God better and it absolutely transformed her life. Transformed their family. He and his siblings still walking with Jesus to this day because they saw that in their mom. This was what characterized Anna's life. And so it ought not surprise us that when Jesus shows up, she recognized him because she already knew him. So he comes into the temple and she speaks to everyone there who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, what characterizes both her and Simeon was this posture of waiting. Thankfulness and waiting. Do you know that in the Bible that fasting is meant to say to God, I miss you. Jesus even said that people fast when the bridegroom is gone. Anna was fasting and praying because she missed her husband, not her earthly husband, her heavenly husband. And so when he showed up on earth, she recognized him and was filled with thankfulness. Here's the opportunity that we have this Christmas. We have the opportunity to display a thankfulness that goes beyond worldly circumstances, worldly pleasures, and worldly treasures. We have the opportunity to show the world that there is something to be thankful for that cannot be lost. And I want to say to those of you who this year has been a year of deep suffering, or this season has been a season of deep suffering, that you have the best opportunity to display that to those around you. And my encouragement to you is to take your grief to God. Take your feelings of hopelessness to God and say, God, would you be my treasure? Would you be my husband? Would you be what's lacking in my life? And allow God to meet the needs of your heart. Like Anna, you'll begin to feel the thankfulness 
rise. So here's my encouragement to you. Even if everything in your life is going wrong or goes wrong in this next year, your hope is secure in Jesus. And because of that, we can obey him with thanksgiving and walk forward in faith and not sink into despair this holiday season and throughout this entire year. So let's pray that that would characterize our lives. Father God, thank you that we have this unshakable hope in Jesus. Thank you for these examples in scripture of Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, people from a variety of different backgrounds who show this step-by-step obedient faithfulness to you, and we see it paying off in their lives. I ask that you would lead us not into dutiful Bible reading and rote prayers, but into deep, real relationship with you like Anna had, where you become the most important person in our lives, the most important relationship in our lives. Would you meet that person who's here this morning? It took everything for them to get here because they feel sad. They feel hopeless. They feel grief. They didn't want to be around people, but they came in faith. God, would you bless even that step of obedience and meet them during this holiday season? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.